Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. another episode of Nightlight. I'm starting off the week and Barbara will be doing her show on Thursday. Since our last broadcast, we got an extra hour of sunlight. Yay! We're getting we're getting to summer. Um we have a return guest this evening. Podcaster, author, explorer Jared Murphy is here. Uh, just a couple days after Christmas, uh, Jerry was our guest uh, discussing his recent publication, It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us. There is more in his captivating book that we didn't get to, so we'll be covering more of the diverse ancient mysteries he has been researching. Uh, you can learn more about Jared by going to his website, NotAliens.com. Hi, Jared. How you doing? Thanks for returning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Um, recently, the boss, Solaris, Mary, all the uh, you know Gloria, who, uh, whoever else has been chipping in information to Nightlight. Um, you know, there have been a bunch of uh, talks about Atlantis and ancient sacred texts, uh, ancient documentation of biblical characters suddenly being uh, transformed into having superhuman or paranormal uh, powers, healthy living. She's got a little bit of all these different subjects, but we find Jared uh, com combining all these topics in his book. Uh, so, you know, I think what we've done recently is just, you know, Jared's just going to extend the information, take us into new directions, you know, and, you know just uh, present more information on 
Yeah, some fascinating information. Um, one of the topics that well, we didn't get to the first, you know, the first time um, is ancient longevity, extreme longevity. And you know, we thought, yeah, that'd be a, a interesting way to start the show off tonight. And most of that is documented prior to Noah's flood. So, um, Jared, let's take a look at some of the examples. Uh, you know, we know, you know Methuselah. Uh, Enoch, I think, lived to uh, nearly uh, a thousand years old. It was extreme, you know, just extreme old age. Um, let, let's get your take on difference in aging before and after the flood. Yeah. It's such a broad um, part of our past that gets uh, overlooked or th thought of as interesting. And before I even get to that, I appreciate you having me back on again. And it's always fun. I don't think uh, people know what an extent, um, as far as like outside of the show, I appreciate uh, just all the insights you've had and the amount of work you've put into, you know, I've been on shows, but I, I am going to out you as being someone who actually reads the work, which is cool. I'm not saying everyone has to, cause not every host has time, but I really appreciate the efforts you put into reading my book, by the way, I just want to say thanks. Oh, you're welcome. I, I, yeah. I, I, we, Barbara and I hear that a lot from um, publishing companies and uh, authors. And, you know, we do really try to have a reasonable, you know, book review. And, you know, we put a lot of work into it, but it, 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 it pay, pays off with guests who want to return reviews. So, you know, thank, thank you for the compliment. Yeah, well, I and I wasn't just throwing, yeah, I just wanted to point it out because it, it is fun to, uh, part of the work of my book is to um, go over the fact that it's not aliens worse, it's us. Discovering our lost history literally means that, that there's so much to go over. I actually didn't think about it until, you know, it's been out now barely a year and it's crazy to think the detail and the complexities of an ancient high-tech human past and People get stuck on the giant stones, the giant polygonal masonry, and there's so much there. But what they don't get uh, further on is the other slivers of truths, which is our focus tonight, which is specifically uh, in the in the spectrum of everything that makes our mysterious past so interesting is these echoing remnants, whether it's in the Bible or the Sumerian culture of the longevities of ancient kings and people like Enoch. And Enoch's really interesting. He's mentioned by Christ himself. Uh, Wallace Wagner, who I've just done an interview with for the mm -hmm. second time, 
you know, and, 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 and he's someone you introduced me to. And, and there, here's a book mm-hmm. that covers uh, UFOs in the Bible. And we talk extensively about Enoch. And yeah. And, and okay. So for those that don't know, Methuselah lived to be the oldest, but coming up in a close second, at like depending on the version, 994 to 997 years, you'll never right. guess. It was Jared. Jared. That is how I got my name, my there. dad, out of the Bible. And Jared is the second. 202. Yeah. (laughs) So Jared is the second oldest living, at least biblically speaking, right? And I never get a chance to get into this. Um, So it's going to be really fun. So what we're covering is what are the slivers of truths that have uh, echoed through time that indicate not only a highly advanced, which is what my book is about, is that not only are there physical evidences, but there's like remnants in stories that show that humanity at some point was able to genetically repair itself, was able to live indefinite periods, but it got mystified, it got deified, and it got turned into a religion. And part of that is looking at two charts within my book and well, within history, but I have it in the book. So if you want to reference it, it's in the book, but it's mm-hmm. about the ages of not just kings, but people and individuals in the Bible. Uh, you, you, who have Methuselah. You're as old as Methuselah, and then Jared, and then like like Enoch lived to 365 years. But what's interesting about Enoch is that he's mentioned not only multiple times in the Old Testament, and there have been so many books written about it. Of course, it's the it's one of the foundational elements for Eric von, von Danigan's uh, Chariots of the Gods, and the Book of Enoch is still in the Ethiopian Bible, the Christian Bible. And, of course, Enoch is referenced by Christ. He's referenced in the Old Testament. But they did not canonize in the Roman Catholic Church the Book of Enoch because basically, in a nutshell, as you all know from Chariots of the Gods, Enoch uh, describes space travel. He describes uh, travel in spaceships. He describes uh, the Earth from a spaceship, a viewing deck. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem for even back then when they were scratching their heads, this was not a book they could keep in. However, Enoch was so holy in quotes that they still kept in the references. So they're not making just for those who go looking, Enoch is mentioned and the book is taken out except for the Ethiopian Christian Bible. But yet he he was so holy, they had to leave him in because they believed his canon that even though he wasn't canonized within the within the Holy Roman Bible, he was actually considered to be uh, worthy. So his references are left in. So that in itself is an interesting rabbit hole for people who want to go down that road. But at 365 years, uh, he's taken by God. Or uh, if we want to get into some of Scotty Allen Roberts' work um, uh-huh. and the translations, the issue is that it's not a God, it's the God. And that, and also Von Danigans and a number of people that the Elohim are not a God, but the gods and heaven uh, is not a um, extra etherical place. It's uh, the heavens, the sky. It's a direct reference to when you look up, that's the sky and they called it heaven. And we have this extra meaning on it when that's not what it was originally. It was just simply a uh, a place that people go to 
look, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a go to you go there. It was just a place. And so Enoch's actually taken from the earth by the gods in spaceships and he's never returned. He leaves at 365 years. And I just think for anyone interested, if you want to go down that road, um, not only is Enoch's the book of Enoch interesting, but the fact that he is taken by God from the earth, I think, is um, really, really, really fascinating. And so I do think that you should um, uh, just go ahead and just check it out. And so now getting back to the overall subject, I think that what you should do is consider what is it that um, – what are we doing with a Bible that has Methuselah, Jared, Enoch, Adam, um, including people like, of course, Noah? They have they live various ages: four hundred years, seven hundred years, six hundred years, three hundred. Shem six hundred. Yep. Yeah. And then Lamech uh, and seven seven hundred and seventy seven years old. Yep. And and what's interesting is that what fascinated me was. Uh, they're really talking years there. And then for a while they said, well, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. They're talking about dog years or, well, they didn't say dog mm-hmm. years. They said moon, moon cycles. And it's like, okay. Um, so the Sumerians had worked out pi in ziggurats. They had worked out the Pythagorean theorem based on the Babylonian Plimpton tablet, which you and I have already talked about, even I think on this show. And then there is other, hexagonal, um, hexamal 60 based math that is basically spherical geometry. Uh, in a nutshell, these people were dealing with very complex equations a thousand, you know, 700 years before Pythagoras was ever going to come to the Pythagorean theorem. And these are in cuneiform tablets in Sumeria, yet they don't know what the, what, what years are. And the ancients were so much more adept at what we consider you know, again, we picture them. We have these constant museum portrayals of um, loincloth slaves, you know, getting whipped up a ramp and throw, heaving a big block into place somewhere. And the reality is, is that that's something that we are contemporary with. That's something that we can only imagine that that's how they were building. But in reality, I think they knew how what years were. I think they knew what cycles were. And so we have three interesting examples. When we think Bible, this is us putting on a very Western cap. And I, I've talked about this barrier between the West and the East. So we have this Western cap of, well, everything's really true about the Bible because, well, we have the, we, well, we know Western science and we invented everything important and everything was out of Africa and everything based for out of Africa is based on what we know of genetics and what we know of Neanderthal, Denisovan and mystery human. There's like a, Currently, even mainstream biology says there's a mystery 14% genealogy that that I think currently is the number, but it, it's going to change. So let's just take it at that. So we have this idea that, okay, well, you know, the Bible, Eden is somewhere in Africa. There's an out-of-Africa theory. So we have non-Christian believers and and just scientists saying, okay, well, everything's out of Africa, so everything's Western. And it's very important that we consider that. But then we have the ancient Egyptians telling Solon, who ultimately gets told also about the Atlanteans and gets ultimately all that goes to Plato. And we say, well, you know, Plato said all this stuff about Atlantis, but in reality it was from Solon. And Solon was in Egypt with the ancient Egyptian priests. And they said, well, you know, we have 38,000 years. We have a king's list that's 36,000 years old. And it goes all the way back to this God. 
and the Sumerians. So we have biblical Hebrew history saying, okay, well, here's Methuselah at a thousand and here's Shep and Noah and Jared and all these and Enoch and all these different biblical figures. And what we have is they start at a thousand. They kind of decrement down to like what we consider normal lifespans. And then we have this um, Egyptian kings list, which never, well, it's getting more and more talked about. There's a spotlight that's been on it for about a decade or so now that's showing, you know, look, the Egyptians account for 36,000 years of their own history. And then we have the Sumerians, which are older. And what do we get from that? Well, we get the Epic of Gilgamesh and we get the story of the Anunnaki, and which is their gods. And I will touch very slightly on Nibiru. We're not talking about it tonight, but uh, Sitchin was wrong. There was, uh, not that he was wrong, there is no cuneiform tablets that back up his perspective on the Anunnaki. But what's important about the about the Sumerians is that their creation story, uh, because the biblical story comes after that. We In Western world, we consider the Sumerians having the oldest uh, creation stories, the oldest religion. And Gilgamesh goes from the Sumerian histories into the Bible. And so that's just something to put on your write down of for those who are self-exploring and self-experimenting. Go look up what happened to Gilgamesh and why, why is Gilgamesh and all of his, well, his adventures. Gilgamesh is in, again, the Old Testament and he's in, he's in, like they just couldn't give him up. I mean, the stories were so good. They tweaked the creation story for uh, the Old Testament. They made it their own. They made the Noah story, but there's the same one. So, so here we have the Sumerians and they too have a king's list. And not only creation list, but a king's list. And this king's list is not a single list. It's a list that is found in different areas of Sumer. So when we say Sumerians, we mean Sumer. And they have a king's list where they have a delineation line that says pre-flood, post-flood, pre-diluvian, post-diluvian. They actually say it in the list. And the pre-diluvian king's list, which I write about in my book, and you get into the details, is it's pretty simple. You have eight kings ruling for between 246 to 267,000 years, depending on how you read it. Well, what's interesting about that is that you have them, you know, again, it was tried to be explained away that, well, it was allegory. It was a story that these kings, mm -hmm. they didn't really live for 32 to 36,000 years each. And then again, they have the list that says post-flood kings. So we're talking, so younger Dryas, we're talking, 12, well, between 11 and a half and 13,000 years ago, uh, mm -hmm. we have what's called the Younger Dryas. And so now we have post-flood kings in the Sumerian kings list. And just like the Bible, because the Bible really borrowed uh, quite frequently from Sumer. So what we have is one can spend a lot of time deciding whether or not uh, the stories from the Bible are really just the Sumerian stories and they carried them over and created their own religion and their own faith system. And that was something that happened later. But when we look at the Sumerian post-flood kings, they have a similar uh, issue with like um, what's going on with Methuselah and Jared and Enoch and, and Adam and Noah and et cetera. What's happened is, is as you move in to the post-flood period, we have, and we are going somewhere with this, folks, but what happens is that, again, the king's years decrement, but not completely. What's different about the Sumerian king's list is some seem to live a lot longer and some seem to live a lot less. 
And what happens is we have a more extensive list, but one has to wonder whether or not, as we still translate millions of untranslatable um, cuneiform tablets, whether or not uh, there is some more, maybe greater accuracy in the Sumer lists. Because although they're listing kings, what's the sliver of common truth? So one, there's a rabbit hole of, well, did the Bible really just take their list and create new stories? And within that allegory, they, you know, Noah and, and Moses and, um, you know, Jared and Methuselah, they're all different people and they have different stories. But what they kept was the ages and how they decrement down. So maybe that's one thing you could take from it. But then, then we look at the Sumerian kings list and that's about kings ruling and their kings, they decrement in their ages. You know, we're going from tens of thousands of years to thousands of years to a thousand years down to kings getting maybe murdered or dying off in 60 years. And so what's happened is, is maybe the sliver of truth that we can take from this story, not completely excluding Hindu Vedas and Eastern religions, uh, which, which, which accounts for over half of the world population in belief system. So we're hearing this as English speaking people, but the reality is that there are many, many people around the world, billions of people that do not believe in Christianity. And they've been believing in the Hindu Vedas and they've been written far longer than what we know of the Bible, which is uh, just, just for note. And for now, what we're looking at is this, what if we know that there was a massive unspoken about prehistory that had an advanced society that could build with giant 1,000 ton stones and account for earthquakes, what were their other technologies? And what we're talking about tonight is age. And age is important because the sliver of truth, whether it's the Bible you want to reference or Sumer, and, 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 and we can get into the Hindu Vedas, but what, what we know from the Sumerian kings list is that we have rulers, and, and they're almost called gods, but the rulers, the kings, were ruling for tens of thousands of years. So is it possible that based on what we can find in evidence in the ground, is it possible and more realistic that a society that can not only control and manage energies and frequencies and waves of earthquakes in their constructions, were they also using technologies that managed their age through tuning of what we now currently in the last, particularly the last 40 years, we call vibrational medicine? Because the best description I've heard of how to describe a human being or organic or the very chairs we're all sitting in or, or listening or, or checking out this show through is frozen light. And that's Dr. Gerber mm. from the book of vibrational medicine. I think that's a great description, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. Frozen light. Yeah, yeah, because we're energy-based beings. This isn't a woo-woo conversation. Uh, we are literally energy-based no, beings. Yeah, we're, 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 we're frozen light. We're frozen. We're we're frozen energy. This organic matter is uh, is really just really thick <laughs> for the graphic coagulated light. How's that for graphic? Um, but that's good. It, it, <laughs> with what you just said and you know the examples of building the pyramids uh 
you know, the 51 degree angles, uh, precisely uh, the uh, corners are you know, precisely pointing to each uh, cardinal point. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of science involved at, uh, by these ancient people. Um, but they, the the time keeping seems like. It, it it should you know you're kind of joking about the dog years. I don't know how they could be so precise in engineering, but really off with yeah, not noticing you know the seasons changing. They they seem too uh, too smart to miss the observations that oh, okay you know. Orion's back, you know, okay, it's, it, you know, it was here, it's another year later. Or you, 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 you know, you really have to wonder how much of a thorough knowledge of science, uh, you know, just, is, uh, you know, just say the Egyptians had. And it, yeah, and you have to apply that to their their uh, timekeeping of. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I actually you know, misspoke by saying Enoch was closer to a thousand, but uh, yeah, you know, just say uh, you know, Methuselah, uh, you know, being well over nine hundred years old. Yeah, it's. There's no way you can't take people. You can't have it both ways. You can't um, whether you you want to go into the conspiracy world and say it seems like a cover up, and there's so many examples because it's just blatant. At the same time, you can't look at a society that's building these ziggurats, and they're clearly based on really complex math. Right. And then say, okay, well, they don't know what a year is. I, <laughs> they didn't say seasons. They weren't implying moons. They weren't implying summer solstices. They said years. And mm-hmm. they knew what a year was. And it's very insulting yeah. to say otherwise. Well, I, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I, and I, you know, maybe what is, you know what's in the Sumerian texts or Bible? Uh, maybe that's actually you know, uh, really accurate. Uh, as far I just don't know. Well, what, I, yeah, I, I don't know how to explain that. Other than you know, maybe well, they were right. Yeah, there's there's no way that you're going to look at the uh, the ages and what. Well, so there's a couple of reasons. Okay, so for everybody who you know, this seems like an obvious point, but Let's get to the heart of the matter of actually looking at our true history versus what we're told by Victorian researchers who didn't want women to vote uh, for one of the many reasons that if we stuck with technology that invented the first phone, we wouldn't have cell phones. The reality is that it's only in the and again, it's not the facts. There is a hundred of Victorian age 
theory of evolution and history, a Victorian age history that has not been updated despite, in fact, Gobekli Tepe. When I started doing research four years ago in a very raw way, it took me almost four years to build my book. And it was a lot of effort. It wasn't procrastination. I just, for all those being funny out there, the the thing that was one of the things that became very interesting to me is not having any data um, biases. The first time I read about Klaus Schmidt, he's of course still alive. He hasn't died yet. And he had been working on Gobekli Tepe for 44 years and something that I feel has been a Mandela effect for me. And I, I am now a great proponent of screenshotting anything you find that you think is interesting. If you think it's going to be there in one day, one hour or two years, don't do it. If you find something interesting on the internet, take a screenshot, please. Because one of the things about Gobekli Tepe right away was organic matter research that had been tested and found to be 36,000 years old. Now, that organic matter was found in situ within Gobekli Tepe, which has only been dug up to 5%, 5% of a site that to this day has, has only 5% dug up. There are six other, there are six total Tepes that they know of. So six different mm-hmm. city locations. And of those, I was, I remember doing the research early on in my, in, in, in my book writing that said, this site is at least 12 or 16,000 years old and could be 36,000 years old. And now, Mark, I cannot find any references to those carbon date, date testing. I have, however, been able to talk to um, some other researchers and some other authors. Uh, Jim Willis, I am, um, I am doing the Forbidden Knowledge News Conference first weekend in April. Jim Willis and I are speaking on Saturday. I'm speaking also on Friday. But uh, Jim Willis has written 13 books, and he is leading a group mm-hmm. to Gobekli Tepe for uh, Andrew Collins. And right. uh, he's he's taking a group to Gobekli Tepe, and he was talking about the restrictions that Andrew Collins almost got banned from going to Gobekli Tepe. And mm-hmm. so this is a site that has huge megalithic pillars. The site was clearly either buried or nefariously hung up, you know, like – uh, it, it, it has multiple years of, of uh, occupation by different cultures, but I got told by Jim that by via Andrew that they are not supposed to speak on site with the tour group about uh, Gobekli Tepe having maybe roofs or that the columns were part of housing structures or buildings or that they're older than 12,000 years. And I, I bring this up because we have this weighted 150-year-old Victorian timeline that is just crushing to any new insight and also into a more realistic, not just timeline, but the sciences, which gets us back soon now to the longevities of ages. So here we are with Gobekli Tepe that they're saying, well, it's around 12,000 years old. And I'm like, hold on. Four years ago, it was 12 to 16,000 to 36,000 years old, and it could be even older to it it was 12 to 16,000. And then I noticed over the last year, particularly around this last year, that suddenly everyone's happy to say it's around 12,000 years old. And I'm like, what Mandela effect is going on right now? Have you heard that? Have you noticed the timeline change? Uh, no, but I've heard some of the similar extreme antiquity dates of 
like uh, for, from the Bosnian Pyramid in uh, Gunong Padang. Oh yeah, those are but like I, that that site. That's twenty three thousand or plus years old, and that was found by a geologist. You know, that's and I write about that quick in the book too, just to give people an, mm-hmm. a scope that there's a lot going on fifteen to thirty six thousand years ago. This lines up with the Egyptian kings list. This starts to line up more with the Sumerian kings list. So if we were to say that there's some bogus lists in the middle, but to give the the Egyptians and the Sumer lists more credence, we have a city that, you know, we talked about it quick, is that there's a city off the west coast of Cuba that is at 2,300 feet, about 1,700 meters. That city uh, would have to have been above water irrelevant to tectonic plate shifting, that city could not have been above water less than 50-ish, 55,000 years ago. So we're all excited about talking about the Younger Dryas and what, we, what we're calling the, the biblical flood, the flood that flooded the earth, and that there was, or that there was some sort of worldwide event. And I think that's true, that there is something that happened somewhere between 11 and a half, 13,000 years ago. We know that from North America. We know that from a number of things being wiped out here. That's all fun and dandy. What we should focus on, though, is that there was something else that happened worldwide in that 55, you know, somewhere between 50 and 60,000 years ago, that city off the coast of Cuba, which is polygonal, it, it's pyramidal, it's built very similar to the constructions around the rest of the world. And something I've not talked about before, and this will be the first time I've actually mentioned this on air. Oh, an exclusive keep for Nightlight. Yeah. Uh, for nightlight, thank exclusive. you. Here it is. So this is not something I'm. You are welcome. So here, here's here's what it is. Um, Scott Walter on America Unearthed uh, was doing a a number of different of the episodes of America Unearthed. A couple of the episodes have covered, of course, the origins of the Aztecs and uh, the Mayans, like Maya blue, that the color came from Georgia and that the the capital. Mm-hmm looks like it could be New Mexico or Utah, the Salt Lake. And that there's also a mysterious issue of corn, which can only be made by the management of humans. And there's no random corn. The corn that we get, and and one of the engineered strains of it in uh, Wisconsin is about 9,000 years old, which means people had to have been in Wisconsin and managing corn for 9,000 years at a minimum. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because one of the things I've theorized in my book is that primitive cultures, just like today, you know, we can run into an, uh, a high technology store or department store and buy crazy technology or cool cars, but yet there's 155, give or take, tribes estimated around the planet that live in nomadic uh, simple, what we would call primitive. They're in loincloths. They live in jungles. They live in deserts. They live in Arctic regions, like Eskimos. They, there are there are tribes, indigenous peoples around the world that live like they lived 50, 80, a million years ago. They are living as they were, which is also just side note why I brought up the Victorian history is that we're talking about a past that we say, okay, we are now the most advanced we've ever been. Well, that seems to not be true. Solon, the Greek, got told by the Egyptians that 
you are young now, but you are very old and you are very ancient and you are very uh, advanced peoples and you're not anymore. And they told the story of Atlantis. And then we have these weird slivers of truths, whether whether it is the Bible or the Egyptian king's list or it's uh, the Sumerian king's list, where you have rulers ruling for tens of thousands or thousands or hundreds of years. We have people living for these crazy amount of times. And then, of course, there's all the giant stories and the and the and the dwarf sized people. So we, we have all these different stories, the moon eyed people, the Cherokee moon eyed people. There's a million different stories around the world from Hawaii to New Zealand to Ireland, you name it. But what we have are if we if we start, if we just wash away the Victorian stuff and say, OK, what are the facts on the table as we play this archaeological adult version of Clue? What do we have? Well, we have really long ages. We have uh, currently we know that people are can live over 100 years, but we also have these strange uh, things within our we have we have. OK, so I won't get into the genetic story yet, but we have the placebo effect. I'm just going to throw the placebo effect out there. Just keep that in mind. And then we have these people living for hundreds or thousands of years, living indefinitely or for thousands of years. And we have it in multiple cultures, even into the East, into the Hindu Vedas. And then now we have a society, not during the Younger Dryas or the Biblical Flood, but about 50 to 60,000 years ago. Well, we have the Egyptian Kings list tapering off about 36,000 years ago. We have mainstream academia already Right now, it won't take you long to look it up online, but they say that Denise Yvonne, Neanderthal, and a mystery 13 to 14% human, mind you, I think that what, that what they're saying is of the genomes they've tested, they've never tested every bone on Earth. They, haven't, they don't have a full paleoanthropological uh, history of the planet. We still, to this day, discover three and a half to 5,000 new living entities a year. And we've been doing that for 40 years. And that's per Michael Cremo and Forbidden Archaeology. Uh, the reality is that the human race has been discovered. We just discovered creatures that live without oxygen at near lava openings. I mean, the reality is we don't even know everything that is living on the planet, let alone what's lived on the planet, let alone a complete human record. But what's important about this is that, again, what mainstream academia is saying is about 50-something years, 50,000 years ago, Denise Van Neanderthal and a mystery group of humans bred into our population. And what I'm building to is this, is that although the Younger Dryas is a very important period, that 50 to 60,000 years ago, an unknown, unnamed, yet-to-be-coined, can't-do-it-yet-honor-your-show disaster happened where and yes there was a there was a, a a volcanic event that Brad Olson and I and Michael in conflict we were co-hosting and talking about just the other night about mm -hmm. uh uh about 75,000 years ago there was a volcanic event but I'm not talking about that I'm talking about a worldwide event somewhere between 55 and 60,000 years ago that really ended what I think was a global polygonal blocked cymatic fully tuned terraformed uh, soil engineered earth where there was one group of humans across the whole planet. But at the same time, just like now, maybe there was 200 or 300 tribes that were still left alone. And here we are with the new info that I haven't shared anywhere on the planet, a new perspective, a new theory, which is the Aztecs and their location coming from the 
uh, Salt Lake region of Utah or that they were coming from New Mexico or possibly they were in the Wisconsin area, that those areas have been occupied by post-Diluvian, at least in the last 12,000 years, they were occupied by those people that then made their way as they think, the Mayans, they made their way south, that they came from North America because the more advanced humans, which used polygonal construction, we know that they used cymatic polygonal blocks, with cymatic meaning vibrational frequency orientated blocks, cancel or mute earthquakes, but they could also transfer energies. They always worked with granite, limestone, and basalt, something to those effects. And uh, Yusuf Awan of Egypt, the tour guide slash Christopher Dunn, uh, Ben from Uncharted X. Uh, there's a million people, Brian Forster, that have all worked with Yusuf and Mohammed uh, Abraham. Uh, they are all th- those Egyptologists, those Egyptians. And he's a multi-generation stonemason, but he has a great video on the electrocurrent uh, transfer and use of basalt limestone and uh, granite and it's very fascinating to watch so there's always there's something to this ancient human society that we don't understand yet but what happened was is something happened 55 to 60,000 years ago whether it's the Giza plateau and the pyramids there or the pyramids all through Central and South America what happened was is they got obliterated one way or the other and I think that the reason uh, there's always been benevolent, I think at some time, there's always been a benevolent society that has left these other tribes alone for whatever reason through the millions, not hundreds of thousands, but the millions of years of human history. That's not an opinion. That's just the in-situ finding from the Red Crag, from the Mediterranean to Table Mountain. There is established paleoanthropological evidence, uh, evidence of humans being here for millions of years. So, what we have is uh, an unknown human timeline that includes two kinds of, or, well, Denisovan, Neanderthal. When you think Neanderthal, you always think of a caveman, but they were, they were taller, they were bigger, they had a larger brain, and yet they're always described as a subhuman species. I want to start getting people to distinguish between Victorian theories and facts. The facts are, again, we don't have a correct and complete paleoanthropological record of the human race. Fact, we know that Denisovan and Neanderthal and a mystery group of humans all bred together about 50-something thousand years ago. And I think that's because it was post a disaster that was maybe hundreds or thousands of years right before it. So somewhere up to that 60,000 mark, everything kind of went to crap. But what do we have in there? We have this king's list. So they remembered one of the things to get in your mind is that the king's list on one level can represent from Sumer that they understood that people lived a long, long period of time. And that too, there there was a longer uh, generational history to the human history, which is important because at the same time, we have an origin story for the Aztecs and the Mayans of more of North America which may have been true because when we look geologically, there are a couple super volcanoes like Yellowstone is located in America. And that's a 60 mile diameter super volcano. That volcano could go off. It's allegedly, well, my numbers 
that I was told were 320 to 360,000 years and we're kind of due for that thing to go up. There may be areas around the planet that the super society that could build and create 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 ton blocked cities and move mountains literally and to uh, engineer the soil and the plants and the um, and tune the frequencies of the very ionosphere of the planet, which may have led to the longevity of our human race, uh, that that society may have left certain areas around the planet where they're like, you know, we may not, we may be able to do a of uh, advanced pressure relief valve, but there are areas we'll just stay away from. And there may have been human societies that they left alone. So just like now, that there are like the Sengalis on their island that recently, well, last what three years ago, killed a missionary for trying to go there. I mean, Marco Polo even said, "Don't go to that island." Literally said, "Stay away from these people." But uh, we have these tribes all over and, and so it would why wouldn't an advanced society in the past leave them alone also so what happens is, is a worldwide society goes through a massive disaster and at the end of it you have obliterated pyramids and constructions which we see all the rebuilds in Egypt and we see all the rebuilds in Teotihuacan and all over Mexico and all over Central America and we have the Guatemalan LIDAR scan so what we have is we have tribal people know so many natural medicines and they may not live thousands of years, but they knew how to take care of themselves and they survive and they take over, adapt and repair and own these old constructions because you don't, I'm, I'm a builder. I I've done 20 years of uh, historical remodeling and I I've done major structural adjustments and, and additions and, uh, I've mutated the shapes dramatically of buildings and you don't start, you don't start a pyramid. So like at Teotihuacan, what doesn't get talked about frequently are the large megalithic ruins. So all throughout Central and South America are megalithic ruins. And why is that important? It's because no one builds uh, with a giant like 300, 400, 800 ton block and then switches to mud brick. No, nobody does that. I, you don't carve four steps and then go, eh, let's give up. Let's let's do mud brick. And then, eh, wait, let's use this megalithic block again. It's clear, It's clear whether it's Oliante Tambo, Sacse Waman, uh, Tiwanaku, Cusco, uh, Corcancha, you, you know, pick whether, you know, we talk about the Giza Plateau, and all the different ruins, I mean, all the way to Cambodia and Angkor Wat, but underwater, like off the coast of Cuba, the Bimini Road, there there are so many places, Doggerland in Europe. Those are just some Yonaguni. of the places. Yeah. Dwar Dwarko. Right. Yeah. Those, more, you know, there's, you know, there's the, the only one that's the most sketchy and I had a hard time geologically deciding if I really, I really couldn't decide if it really existed, like with all the tectonic plate shifting. So like on one hand, the recot structure, the eye of Africa is possibly, I think Jimmy from Bright Insight did a really brilliant documentary on the eye of Africa being uh, Plato's um, Atlantis. It has uh, saltwater evidences but the, it has the mountains. It has everything in the correct location. Anyway, people should check that out. But what's important is that it's 7,800 feet above water. 
Uh, at the meantime, Lake Titicaca is at almost 13,000 feet, yet it's a massive lake with salt water and seahorses. Now, I don't put it past an ancient society that can literally move mountains to salt the lake and add seahorses. Like it's possible that it's manufactured, but it's also possible that that city off the coast of Cuba had it been above, other things could have been below and the eye of Africa could have been at sea level because that's what it really indicates and looks like. And 7,800 feet is a lot closer to 13,000 feet at Lake Titicaca in South America. So is it possible that through the shifting of some violent event uh, that it's that everything ended up where it did in a particular time frame? I, I absolutely think that that's possible. Uh, scientifically, there are too many uh, common um, locations that have that kind of a shifting of a, of a rise in height and a fall. So tectonically, I mean, again, plate tectonics, remember, is a theory. I'm a huge fan. I, I did it. I was a nerd. I will out myself. I did. I definitely went to the district science fair with the earthquake project. Um, <laughs> and I won. And I won all three years. But I, 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 I'm just, you know, it, it's really fun. The idea of plates, that Pangea, that everything was connected. It appears that everything broke off and moved out over hundreds of millions of years. You know, we have a, a four and a half to seven billion year old planet uh, that. Yeah, like Loch Ness. The, like the Loch Ness should actually be part of. Canada or, or uh, North America is somewhere in North America. That's yeah. Of, yeah. The theory too. Uh, well, yeah. And, and it's so fun to look at this with everyone because I think everyone out there listening, and I've been saying this more recently, and I really want to encourage everyone listening that you are all self experimenters. You are not passive listeners. Everyone out there listening has a mind of their own and we are there is and I know we're not going over it tonight there's too much in the book and there's too much just in general it's not about the book but of course please be interested in the book and you know follow me etc cetera, etc cetera. but the it's a great what's read. important is yeah thank you it's what's important is the self experimentation we all have a shared genetic memory we all have collective human consciousness that's a real science it's a real thing we are vibrational um, uh, creatures. We are magnetic and electromagnetic. We are um, not just, we're not physical beings. We we have an aurora and this ties into that vibrational medicine. This is not a theory. This is a real, this is a real thing. Um, they've been doing work on this. Uh, Burr in the 1940s had done research on the uh, taking an image of whether it was a unsprouted seed Sprouting a seed, by the way, of people is when you give it water, it unpacks itself exactly like for those nerds out there, a zip file. When you have a large file and you can mathematically reduce it and make it smaller so you can ship it and then unpack it and you still have the image. That's just, that's exactly what a seed is. What people don't realize is that when you eat, uh, this goes into paleo, which is also in the book, and it's about how do we positively do gene expression? How do we reactivate what we're calling superhuman abilities? And how do we live longer, but not just longer, but how do we live more connected back to this, what seems like a giant 
advanced computer that's in safe mode, which is the earth and us. How do we do that? And part of it is how we eat. And part of it, what we eat are seeds. And there are sprouted seeds and unsprouted seeds. And unsprouted seeds are just super zipped up, packed up vitamins and minerals that we need. But when they're packed, you don't get any of the inform you don't get any of the positives. You just get the salt, you get the protein, you get some healthy fat. But when you sprout a seed, what you're telling the seed to do is to grow into what it's supposed to be. And this goes into vibrational medicine, back to Burr. So here he is in nineteen forty and he's measuring the magnetic the image of what what is the seed, the unpacked just dead seed what is it what is it showing magnetically under uh, measurements and what is this and and then he started experimenting right away with salamanders because there, there's a lot of genetic reasons to do it but what they found was uh in measuring whether it was an egg or whether it was a seed what they found was that the adult salamander and the adult plant was shown magnetically fully grown and later there's a technology called Carillion Photography. And what you might, for those of you who are familiar to a point, you might realize that it's, oh yeah, Carillion Photography is where you take an aurora image of the electromagnetic field around, whether it's a human, a plant, an animal, they all have a Carillion, an aurora. And that ties into some other theories, which we just talked about, about collective human consciousness, the idea that not all the information or your soul is stored within your body itself, that it is literally within not only a collective downloadable collective consciousness, where I've talked before about maybe that collective consciousness is a way that we store all of what we are in our memories and that we're always backed up by each other. And that the reason we're more advanced now than when Leonardo da Vinci was inventing things is because we have more RAM, we have more computing capacity. So for those of you out there who think there should be 30 or 40% less people on the planet, I want to remind everyone that the collective human consciousness, it's not just idea after idea inventing on itself by 10 or 20 or 100 people or even 1,000. I'm telling you that the 8 billion people on the planet don't represent our original human population, that it was much larger based on engineered soil and based on the fact that if you take 8 billion people right now, and I got to credit Michael Tellinger with this, if you take all the people on the planet now and round it up to 8 billion, give them an acre, they could basically fit in two states the size of Texas. But that's not a lot of people, really. But the collective human consciousness has allowed for advancements in nanotechnology, switching, spintronics, which means quantum computing, and then also the ability to back each other up like a zip file. And so these experiments that have been really going on in the last 80 years have included things like Burr going, well, it appears that the magnetic, that the very structure of whether it's a seed or an egg, that it shows the fully grown adult. And in Carillion photography, what it's doing is it's taking an, or, uh, an aurora image of a living entity. And now there's different ways to do it. Not all Carillion photography is created equal, but I want to stick with this idea of longevity, living for thousands of years. And what does it indicate? And what it what what they found through Carillion photography and researchers is that there's something called the phantom leaf experiment, where if you cut a third of a leaf off, like just razor cut off a third of a leaf, if you take a Carillion photo, the aurora, the very image of the missing section of the leaf shows up, just like when you have a phantom limb when you've been, had an amputation. And what's interesting about this is that there was an orthopedic surgeon out of New York, 
who has developed technology, and some people might even be listening that are beneficiaries of this, but the technology was first applied to horses and animals and experimentally to regrow bone from extreme fractures and damage where it would otherwise have required an amputation. And what they found was that they could stimulate uh, the currents of the bone, of the cellular level at the bone to regrow and regenerate correctly. And it was later, first it was applied internally within the bone uh, through surgery, surgical implants. Then eventually it was found that they could do it just in the cast at night while you're sleeping. And one of the experiments was to take salamanders, which have the evolution. Okay, we're calling it, again, it's the theory of evolution. Remember that, folks, it's a theory. And what that means is simply that our universe and our planet is much more complex than we think. So don't jump to any other conclusions, just that salamanders can regrow limbs that are cut off. Uh, in fact, you will love to hear about a snail that the Japanese have been studying. This is uh, the last article I read was from Daily Mail. This is a snail that can de that decapitates itself, uh, literally cuts off its own head, and the head regrows a body over the course of a month and a half. Wow! It doesn't. Even, it does. Yeah. It literally. Mark. It doesn't have a heart for almost three weeks. This is this is something that we're like. There are sharks, by the way, that live in the, in the Baltic that are that can live over 400 years and we think oh that's an evolutionary principle well here's what's going to blow everybody okay that should be mind-blowing i just talked about a decapitated snail and 400 plus year old sharks and that doesn't blow your mind so here's what will this orthopedic surgeon out of new york started experimenting with the salamanders and as it would they would surgically remove a limb and then it would grow a new one but while they watched they also did some instrumental measurements and they found that there was a negative uh, charge to the cellular to the to the cells that were doing the what ultimately counts to piezoelectric uh, electronic switching basically computing basically like a robot uh, of computations what they figured out was there was a specific negative going on at the point of the limb where it was regrowing so they experimented with frogs, and what they did was they surgically removed the frog's leg, and they gave it the same negative uh, current that the salamander, well, in essence, the same negative current. And the frog, despite evolutionary developing the point where it doesn't regrow limbs, was regrowing a limb. And how does this tie into the phantom leaf experiment and this idea of Karelian photography of the aurora, the, the esoteric, the etheric body, the vibrational uh, universe and what we are as an entity? What they found, and there's a number of researchers, and I know we have a limited amount of time, but what, what we're talking about is... Oh, awesome. So we're, we're talking about uh, showing the phantom leaf experiment showed that the leaf itself knew that it, it showed basically the outline of what the leaf should grow into, which is really part of a tree. And we'll digress on that in a minute. But for now, what we're talking about is the very current negative or positive. And they also found around disease fighting, uh, Karelian photography has been used for cancer identification and some other diseases. There's ongoing experimentation 
with it, just like CAT scans, MRIs, you name it. And, and again, there's there's a lot to unpack there, but I just want to stick with the image for everyone out there that there's there's a concept that we've lost where that we pick it up in the idea of the placebo effect where we have a conscious image of our health, a conscious power within us that isn't a random accident. It's not a just a maybe. There is an there seems to be a very significant design element around you determining what a healthy you looks like versus a sick you. And I would like to throw it out there to, you know, the the big conspiracy would be to say, hey, you know, pharmaceutical companies aren't going to get anything out of this. And I actually want to throw it out there that they've been so terrified. They've Their business model has been on well, we need to make people sick. I've, I've literally had multiple doctors. One of the things that I've been, I love about doing what I've been doing is that I know so many medical professionals, and I mean doctors, surgeons, nurses, and 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 a significant amount of them. And literally out of their mouths, the our business is about uh, the hospitals seem to be set up, and the and the educational system seems to be set up to get people sick, keep them sick. Treatment mm-hmm. is where the money is, not the cure. And I want to throw it out there to all, anyone listening within the system, the gray state, um, instead of worrying about being the enemy, I want you to consider that there's more money in preventative health and in uh, keeping people healthy than there is in treating them when they're sick. That's a paradigm that, again, we're all, my problem is that I I think that we're all operating at 10 to 15% brain capacity. We're in safe mode. We're not operating where we were when we lived tens of thousands or indefinite amounts of years. And we'll get, we'll get back to the longevity of man and what we could get back to and superhumans like Wim Hof and Stieg Severinsen and, mm-hmm. and people who practice like the Wim Hof. We'll, we'll get back to that. But for now, I think people uh, who are in the gray state or within that organization is one really start looking at more that the collective human consciousness when it was Leonardo da Vinci's time came up with corkscrew wood helicopters that would never work. But when we, when we reachieved collective human consciousness through the billions of what uh, gosh knows what the actual uh, uh, cubits of information are available to the total collective third eye of the human consciousness. And I don't mean the individual calcified pineal gland. I mean the total collective human consciousness at 8 billion people. When there are people out there who think there should be a half a million, half a billion people on the planet total, or that there should be 33% less of the population. I want you to make uh, I want you to make a different effort to consider that that collective human consciousness is what's causing, whether it is an individual or not to break through some of the barriers we've had in our collective amnesia and our sleep to make spintronics and quantum computing possible, to make some of these leaps back into where we could be possible. And that not only is it uh, externally technically possible, I think second sight and uh, other abilities that are considered what we call paranormal really all tie into what is an ancient human uh, lost technologies, which include uh, cellular switching. And what we're finding is, is the more we learn about the human body and not just regrowing limbs 
and cellular repair. I talk about uh, Johnny Chong, about Qigong. It's an Eastern medicine. It manifests differently. But for Johnny, he could start paper on fire. He could direct the electrical current in his body. He healed people a, a lot of different ways. There was a documentary crew. There's been a book written about him. I talk about it in my book. Important was that ultimately one of the scientific papers that was looking at uh, very detailed, looking at what's going on at the mitochondrial level of DNA. And it's basically nuclear cold fusion. And then here in the realm of what vibrational medicine, by the way, is kind of the capstone on what some people might think of as herbal medicine or homeopathic medicine. This is all uh, under the single umbrella of vibrational medicine. That's the, really the bigger subject. But what we have are these different instances and pieces of it that all come back to a, a half a dozen or more TED Talks by really brilliant people about doctors explaining the placebo effect. And all of it goes back to uh, why is it that we're describing nuclear cold fusion, uh, vibrational medicine within the cellular structure as piezoelectric cellular switching, and then the direct description used with all of it is, well, it's a lot like a computer. It's a lot like it's some sort of a machine. And I think as we've gone from not knowing there was a double helix in the DNA to a quad helix to uh, these nuclear cold fusion and uh, piezoelectric switching properties of cellular uh, mechanisms uh, and, and, again, what we're calling the placebo effect, these are all we're, we're describing things and we go, well, this is this is like uh, technology. This is like uh, some sort of a, a robot or a computer. Well, we are so detached. We look at a tree, a plant, a flower, even dirt. And for everyone who hasn't heard before, my big thing into the market here is uh, terra preta, which is an ancient engineered soil. It's in Northern Africa. It's all over South America. It's at least has an area in Brazil the size of two Spains or a couple Great Britons. And it is soil that can be up to 20 feet thick. And it has piezoelectric properties. And I don't think that has to do with growing. I think it has to do with communications and a connected terraform planet. And it's in Australia. So it's Australia, Central America. And then I found as I looked, it's in uh it's in uh, Siberia to North America. And so we have this engineered soil and then we have polygonal constructions and all of it, of course, not handling it tonight, but it's all about a larger connected humanity and planet with the plants and animals itself. So another biblical story in reference to living for thousands of years, we automatically think that what we eat is grown in the soil. The reality is that if you had a aurora, that had to just be tuned to a particular frequency, just like Anthony Holland, who is a professor who I talk about in my book, had picked up Royal Rife's work and killed MRSA, leukemia, a number of other bacteria and viruses, and I mean by the dozens. And this should be news every year. And he gave a huge TED Talk. It's available. You can watch on video as you can see uh, cancer being destroyed by sound waves. 
imagine a society that just simply had to stand within the correct vibrational frequency range and have the very cancer in them just eliminated and or the correct the not correctly operating cells uh, eliminated we take it for granted that every cell in the body is replaced uh, there's varying numbers i've heard now i'll just tell you that within six months to a year you've been entirely replaced as a human being so you have to think about this that the very person that you meet and hang out with and you don't see for a year is literally not the same person a year later. How does that keep? Isn't it? Like your soul. What yep. makes your soul then? If you're if you're entirely replaced, every cell in your body, well, why do they grow old? Why grow old? You know, there's no... The Sanford yeah. Institute has been working on that. Is that odd? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and this is, and, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, oh no. No, I, no, no. I, and I, I, I did want to just, um, um, like, um, buttress your information uh, about the vibrational uh, healing, uh, oral rice, uh, uh, research into. You know, cancer is when Maria Wheatley's been a guest with us. You know, she's talked about uh, the vibrational frequent uh, archaeoacoustics at Stonehenge, and um, you do have some of the uh, skeletons that were found, like the Amesbury Archer, who um, it was determined. That he was from like Germany, Switzerland, or uh, he had a, a, a club foot or something like that. Obviously, it's going to be a painful walk, uh, hundreds of miles, and you know, eventually some, somehow getting across the channel. But Maria ha has discussed the. the Vibrations at Stonehenge and other uh, megalithic sites, and you know, she, she's explained that you know, her theory is that um, maybe a lot of these places were these megalithic sites were um, hospitals, healing centers. I, I love that you bring that up because one of the things I had talked about early on is uh, the Greek amphitheater. And in my book, I referenced some, there's some brilliant scientists in the last, literally for the last few years. I don't, these people should be championed way more. There's a series of scientists that I bring up their papers in my book that are talking about how it made ancient origins news right before my book was released. So that was about, uh, I think it was April of 2020, so it was 2021, or so, no, it was April of 2019. So they said, we can't help but notice that the structural pylons of the Greek and Roman amphitheaters uh, closely resemble a seismic metamaterials that mute earthquakes. And they said it in quotes because there's a lot of theories that the Greeks and the Romans inherited, not that they weren't brilliant 
architects or uh, sculptors or artists, but that they inherited a lot of what they used to build their society, just like the dynastic Egyptians, that whatever happened in that world 55, 60,000 years ago, it, it kind of fell into chaos after whatever disaster happened. And then, and then we got hit again with the younger Dryas. And then, and then whether it was the same people or new ones, they came in and they readapted it for their use. And what happened was, uh, you know, you have the Greek amphitheaters where they'll have someone stand down on the stage and they'll say, these amphitheaters were built so well. You can hear a dollar bill crinkle and they'll crinkle a dollar bill, you know, so you can sit at anywhere in this Greek amphitheater mm-hmm. and hear the acoustics, right? And it's like crazy, right? Yeah. So, and, and, and they're, it, it, the, the engineering... With, with you know, just, just throwing out a sample like the uh, amphitheaters, there is just so much there built into the engineering that it is just astonishing to, uh, today, and we're just rediscovering that. Yeah, and so this ties into what you're saying about imagine a society where whether it's the pyramids like Christopher Dunn's theory of the Giza power plants and pyramids Mm -hmm. across the planet, uh, there is something to the water, a global, low vibrational, totally ionized uh, frequency managed planet with, by the way, not random forests. I talk about this in the book, like the meta Sequoia, the granddads, um, um, the granddads, Meta Sequoia, the granddads of Sequoia. And we don't actually have an origin for Sequoia, by the way. It's so interesting, but that's, again, besides the point. Uh, these scientists that we're looking at, seismic metamaterials are the studies of whether it's a nano-sized object to a large object, things that would mute or cancel earthquakes. But we have giant stone spheres all over the Earth. We have giant polygonal construction, and we have these oddly amplified Greek amphitheaters. And from the air, one of the theories that has been around forever now in alternative history is, why is it that all these buildings look like giant circuit grids? Why does Teotihuacan look like a giant basic circuit? And why is yeah, the Nazca line? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah seen go that. ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, no, I, 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 I'm just uh, agreeing with you that uh, it... it The overhead shots that are being given a lot of attention, and and people are doing it more and more with uh, their own drones. Uh, It's an entirely new perspective, and you get the uh, uh, like uh, like motherboard uh, configurations, and and like you know what you're saying. Okay, go go go, my. I'm 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 just I was just agreeing with you. <laughs> no, I totally agree with you. No, here. keep going. I'm 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 good. No, it's hey, I can shut up once in a while. <laughs> Watch me take no, a breath. But um, um, you know, well, in in a little bit, uh, and we talk about um, America's Stonehenge and the you know all the drones and lidar being used up there. Uh, yeah, that's get been given or get been giving Dennis new perspectives on the site you can talk about you know and we can talk about that uh in your 
upcoming presentation there. Yeah, the the and where I was going with the Greek amphitheaters is that we've been thinking, okay, well, if they inherited, and this is why it's important to get away from these Victorian theories of our origin, our history, our Western philosophy. There's no Western or Eastern philosophy. It's all what is human history? Why is our global pyramid network global pyramid? Uh, There's like a one similar, world, right? And it's not, I mean, by God, we were more easily able to come up with the hundredth monkey theory. And it was more easily acceptable to think that there was a collective human consciousness and everybody just kind of scratched their head at the same time and decided, you know what? It's the, it's the age of not the Aquarius. Let's, uh, let's all build pyramids. They actually come up with the hundredth monkey theory to explain it, that none of the continents were connected that everybody just decided it's time to make blue jeans. They didn't just come from America. They just, everybody made blue jeans. And you get the same same standard unit of measurement (laughs) all around the world about the same time, but they're the ocean. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, so how, how do you, but, you know, people were probably, pretty sharp enough to do this naval engineering to get the ideas from point A through the ocean over to point B. And I I think people are traveling a lot more than what we give them credit for. Yeah. And so let's just uh, go rewind, not just Younger Dryas, not just 50,000 years ago, but into the well into the age of the Sumer Kings list of kings that were ruling 246,000 years ago. And let's just say that it wasn't a, it was still part of, it was just an echoing remnant of a worldwide society that could use the Nazca lines as giant earth circuits, that the pyramid system had more to do with what was connected in the earth to the sky, that the, that you and I are, and that they're engineering like meta sequoia trees and that the way everything is laid out from what's above the earth to below is well organized, not just for muting earthquakes, but for either uh, transmitting uh, piezoelectric signals literally through the soil itself. And we already know that there's a discharge when you walk uh, barefoot, but let's just say we're all connected. We're not 10 or 15% conscious. Let's say we're 80 or 90 or 100% conscious. And you, you, as we travel through the solar system, as we travel through the galaxy, we are experiencing all sorts of different ways and frequencies that we may not have experienced. Uh, We think of uh, the speed of everything in reference to its relativity to us. The reality is, is that we don't actually know what the speed of the universe is. And so uh, as a side note, rabbit hole, when you want to go back in time and you want to even go back a hundred years ago, you have to not just think of time. You actually have to think of where literally was the entire planet, solar system, and galaxy an hour ago in reference to everything else? Because if I want to go back five minutes or 500 years, I have to be that place 500 years ago or 100 years ago or five minutes ago. And it's not just in time, it's in space. And so we're traveling in. You and I, we live indefinitely. We have cells that repair themselves. We're conscious of it. And we have a pyramid power plant system. And mind you, we always like to imagine our past by the relics of these megalithic structures. We frequently don't consider that 
the ancillary technologies to build and move and manage these machines, to engineer ourselves, to understand how to do piezoelectric switching at the cellular level, that these are abilities that may have been something that we programmed many, many millions of years ago and, and developed into a high technology that we now think and we quote as nature. But here the, here's a society that's using things like the Nazca lines or the Bolivian Nazca lines and they're using other things around the world that are gone and dusted and rusted and recycled. But this is a worldwide planet filled with uh, a one world society that doesn't actually die unless there's maybe extreme disaster or brings people back, which is why we have the idea of reincarnation. In reality, the sliver of truth may be what I was saying earlier is that collective human consciousness may be a way through ones and zeros to keep or store whether it's in a plant, an animal, a bug, or all of humanity, a way to support your consciousness. Because if you're not the same person you were six months or a year ago, we can have a long conversation just about are you what makes your soul when every cell in your body is replaced. But now they're not growing old. And here we are in this society that's tuned the universe and tuned the world. But we've reached a new point in the universe. Let's just say we go through a storm. And you and I are going to walk to one of those Greek amphitheaters. Oh, but they're not Greek. They're very advanced at this day and age in our ancient past, 60, 70, 80, 100,000, 200,000 years ago, maybe a million. But we're, we're back in time. And, 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 and again, side note, this, the Sphinx, uh, the, 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 the Egyptian uh, weathering, Baalbek, Lebanon, there's many indications of ancient weathering that shows tens of thousands of years, including Stonehenge and standing stones all across Europe, dolmens. These are large megalithic structures that at some point, the, the, the parts that were in the ground show well-hewned sides and polishings and cuttings that could have only been done by higher technology people. But here we are in our advanced society, not growing old, and you personally, Mark, seem very irritated and, and uh, kind of perturbed, and I personally have cancer. Because we have gone through a portion in our travels as a planet through the galaxy, and we've hit some sort of uh, energy storm that was not able to be filtered out by the way we've tuned the planet. And what's happened is, is that we have cells within our body that are mutating, that are transforming our aurora, that collectively, because we're all in communication with each other, because we're at that 80, 90, 100% consciousness, and we have our pineal glands active, but we end up at that Greek amphitheater. And we go to watch a play. And that play, we have synesthesia. We have the ability to sense other people's touches. We have the ability to see numbers as colors or colors as flavors or flavors as numbers or colors. We have the ability that actors on that stage, as we sit in the stands, not only can we hear them and see them and feel and sense what they're, what they're acting out in their play, your irritation starts to fade. My cancer starts to be healed because Anthony Holland's work, to your point, Anthony Holland bought Royal Rice work. And you can watch a TED Talk, everyone out there. He was a music professor that thought, what would vibrational frequency energy have? What kind of effect would it have on MRSA? I mean, this should be like, like why would, you know, there's more money again in not just preventative. There's always something we're going to get. There's always something that's going to come. You don't actually have to manufacture it. Just Carillion photography, MRIs, developing it 
further would be an endless amount of money than the existing paradigm for all those big tech companies out there at the great state that's worried about not making money. I don't think they realize that if to stay healthy and be healthy is a longer game and a better game than the one that the game they understand now. And that brings us full circle where you and I are in this, what is not just a Greek amphitheater, it's a healing center. It's a center where extreme vibrations and frequencies are amplified between everyone sitting there, their auroras, their collective energies. They are amplified because instead of it just having a stage and actors in front of them, there's another machine that as of now we can only imagine or is missing. There is an, uh, another amphitheater. There is another uh, directional frequency and energy that's being directed towards us, towards us like Anthony Holland's latest work where the vibrations and energy is required to tune out the cancer, the irritation in your mind, and for us to retune the entire global network of the way we manage our, our, from our ionosphere down to our engineered soil, that is all being tweaked again because it appears that we're entering into a galactic, a universe-sized storm that for the next 100 years, our solar system is going to be passing through and we had to tweak the total global vibrational energy frequency machine system to that storm. And those are the things that we don't currently have eyes on or understanding of. And I'm just throwing it out there for everyone to play with it in their own minds. It's definitely stuff that I talk about in my book, but I think it is a, a huge shift on the way we've considered our, health and our existence as humanity goes in the past. Well, to use another example out of your book about living a healthy lifestyle, um, there is the Wim Hof example, and you actually met him. Uh, yeah, I trained with him the very first time he came to America. I was there. I was lucky enough to be a part of the first hundred something people, and we trained right alongside him. He was right there, uh, literally alongside everyone, and it was pretty amazing. But yeah, I got to learn how to do Wim Hof from Wim Hof in San Francisco on Treasure Island. Yeah, it, it, I just just wonder. Uh, yeah, yeah. In the last year, um, you know, had to learn. I was introduced to like the the vagus nerve, um, work, and the other information you present. Uh, it's, don't let the pain bother you, you know, when we did our uh, Houdini show um, and the guests were talking about Houdini in the 1920s or so, uh, Houdini had, uh, as his stunts became more elaborate and death-defying, uh, he had trained himself not to panic and, you know, we See them doing, you know, basically applying all these ancient 
techniques so that you know he's kind of like the uh, like a you know Steve Austin without you know being bionic and just being in his natural self. But it, it was through the training. It was a really interesting story uh, that you gave us. I, one of my questions is we have been looking at um, what we're understanding today of the human body, how much of that can is actually just being rediscovered concepts that go that that might explain why you know the Sumerian you know this one Sumerian king you know was uh, you know, had a reign of eight hundred years, or why Methuselah was nearly a thousand years old when he died. Uh, you just kind of wonder if there's like some kind of connection there. Yeah, and eating um, soil out of the you know uh, black uh, soil. You know the the veget. Uh, they seem to uh, uh, the ancients who were using the black soil would sounds like they might have been more vegan, and we get that advocacy in the Bible as well. I, I, you, you mentioned that in the book of Isaiah. You, you just wonder how much of all this uh, science it is all incorporated into um, people being like superhuman. Yeah, I don't think we're we're not even close. I mean, neurosurgeons talk, you know, some will hold up their pinky finger and say, you know, this is about what we know the human brain. Um, we didn't know the human brain could repair itself. Well, it does. The heart does repair itself. It doesn't just scar. It does repair itself. Um, we have Dr. Gerald Pollack describing the fourth state of water called easy water. And that is... Uh, Again, not frozen water, not evaporated, not um, hot boiling or snow or ice cubes. The, the reality is that we think that there's only a few states of water, but there aren't. And it's in living tissues that they find easy water. That's what they've called it, E-Z, elephant zate. That, um, but it's, it's very interesting for us as we, how much of it are we discovering that's really just a rediscovery when you have right back to where we started with Solon being told by the Egyptian priests, you are, you Greeks are actually very old. You're very young now in your knowledge in your, in where you think you are. But um, the description that we're in an age of decline, why is the Pythagorean theorem showing up in Sumer? Why are they using pi? Why is that in the Egyptian pyramids? Why is it that they're mummifying people? Was there a time uh, within even reincarnation? Is it that, the memory that a fully conscious human race with a collective consciousness can uh, literally grab a physical human being, a, a, a spirit of a human being can be regenerated into a new human being because the collective consciousness of that person is never failed within the total 
living structure of what you could term as Gaia, which is a, a very Isaac Asimov term, by the way, for those of you who haven't read the entire iRobot to Foundation series. I mean, the very last book for Foundation and Earth, no giveaways here, but uh, uh, that would be a good shot for Avatar, uh, except more complex. And the series, you know, it, it gets into the idea that you're not um, just, not only are you not disconnected from the planet itself, but it's not that the planet itself is alive, it's that it's been engineered to connect. That's something to consider. That the engineered soil to our our genes and the plants and the animals are all here as a living network. Even yeah. even uh, yeah. So even with the Bible saying, well, at one time the baby laid on the cobra's den and everybody was friends and you could talk to animals. Well, how far away would that be from truth? If even with a hundred percent brain capacity, you know, if you think. Even if your neural synapses are not equal to Einstein's, because Einstein donated his brain to science. And when they looked at his brain and they look at where what we theorize memory is located, the branches that hold memory look like a forest. You know, they branch out like a tree, where some people might be the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. And, but here's the thing though let's say that Einstein was only 10% conscious, and his 10% might be like, 30% consciousness of some other people. But what if what if someone else had a peak consciousness of 30% or 40, but they had a neural network, honestly, more like the very sad looking Charlie Brown Christmas tree. So they had a capacity that was at or beyond Einstein's. And it was because of the other collective reasons of what you call consciousness existed for that person. So it's not, uh, I think, everyone's one way or within a certain scope and only has one ability. There's a possibility that there are varying states of how we are in this, as Graham Hancock puts it, this a species with amnesia. Collectively speaking, Anthony Holland's work of, of picking up royal rifts and these different states of what we're rediscovering, not only about water, but about the way the human body actually manages um, to connect all of it to a high-functioning interconnected system where maybe we did not eat plants or even animals. That, like the Bible says, one day we're all friends and we're talking, and then the flood happens, and God's like, screw it, eat all your friends. You know, well, that's not how he puts it, but, you know, I quote it specifically in the book. But the point is, is that, Maybe there's some truths in that even at 100% consciousness, whether you're Einstein or Charlie Brown Christmas tree, that at 100% conscious, you still can't manage all the information that's coming to you through. Synesthesia is considered a disability. It's considered or a different ability. It's considered something that when I mentioned earlier where you hear colors and numbers and sounds and smells mm -hmm. and all your senses are mashed up where you look at a color and maybe taste something or you taste something or somebody says something to you about a taste or a color and you see numbers or you hear a number and you taste something. I mean, there's a million different ways synesthesia works. And I brought it up before, but even with all these incredible, insane Wim Hof uh, controlling your heating, your cooling, your vagus nerve, your inflammatory response, being able to regenerate or generate old cells and stay basically youthful or pick a point or 
or again, you replace every cell in your body. You know, do you want to be 40 one year and 20 the next or stronger or thinner or taller or a giant? Uh, there seems to be no real eyes on why the cellular system only ages to one direction and quits. We actually don't know those answers at all. But within within that entire system of how the human being could live or die, what if we needed our animal friends and the plants to process all the vibrational energy, also therefore, in quotes, information coming from out of this world so that the plants and the trees and the soil itself was one connected network that could filter. And for those of you who are anime fans, not like a Pokemon or a Pikachu, or uh, but think of an avatar Think of your animals and your uh, plant friends as um, this connection that allows you to filter the noise of the complete universe. That that's just food for thought. It is. So now, oh, th- oh go ahead. I think uh, what the last hour and thirty-seven minutes has been food for thought. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it, yeah, that could be a nice segue into ideas you have in the works about doing some exploration, which would uh, be getting people to have more food to put in their brains, which is a good thing. And you have a little... uh, talk coming up as well. I think Dennis is yeah, there's, tr- trying to yeah. uh, uh, stop uh, hauling brush from the uh, forestry project to give you a call <laughs> about a couple things. <laughs> uh, but but um, yeah, yeah, uh, let's uh, you know, I, I just wanted to you know, make sure we had a little bit of time to talk about your interest in motivating people to uh, uh, get back out and explore, you know, you know, just for legal purposes, you know, uh, you know, you know, just be aware, of, you know, the virus situation. But you, you know, you do want to uh, people to rediscover, um, you know, the Columbus spirit or. You know, uh, who, who, you know, whatever explore, you know, you want DeSoto, you know, just th- throwing out just examples, the Templars, you know, just get out there and reevaluate, you know, get out of the house and see, see what's going on, Tr- try to develop a new perspective. So, so what, yeah, Jared, what do you want to do? Uh, what what do you have in the works? What you know? How do people contact you to you know learn about what you're doing? Yeah. So first, um, I have notaliens.com, and so there you're going to find my book, which is I I actually sign them and go to the post office and send them out. If you're out of country, uh, just email me and we can make it work. It's just that it's a little more expensive. But you can get a signed copy of my book there, and also there's a members area where I talk about – I have exclusive interviews, and 
things that are going on and things that I can't talk about on YouTube or places that I might get banned. But then, um, I'm, I, of course, I'm on Amazon. But for traveling, right now, I'm planning an expedition back to the Grand Canyon. And I'm also going to be at, I, I'll start with America's Stonehenge, which is Dennis Stone. Uh, his site, I know, his, it's America's Stonehenge, and his name is Dennis Stone. And he's a wonderful human being. He's become a good friend. I really appreciate, uh, and I'm excited to participate in work some archaeological work at America Stonehenge. It's been featured on America on Earth. But at the end of April, uh, if you would like to join me, I will be at America Stonehenge. I will post on notaliens.com. A, you can purchase uh, a ticket, and I will be providing my book. And I will be doing a three-hour lecture. And then there will be a, a break. And then if you'd like to tour America Stonehenge with me, we will be going over it. It's in New Hampshire, and that uh, will be Saturday the 1st. I believe that's the 1st of May. And it will be a really good time. So that's the first thing that I will physically be at this year that you guys can all – America Stonehenge is open. Please, if you can go, go. It's not that expensive. It's an amazing site. It's 110 acres, and it has been an active archaeological site for seven years, and there's over 800 sites between uh, the East Coast and Canada that are similar. There has been carbon dating of findings to at least 8,000 years old. Like I said, it's been on America on Earth. So America Stonehenge is amazing, but I will be there that last weekend of April into May 1st uh, for that Saturday. So that, that should be really exciting. But the first weekend in April 2nd, uh, Friday night, I am the keynote for the Forbidden Knowledge News virtual conference. I will be the keynote uh, at seven o'clock, I believe that's Eastern. And then on Saturday, Jim Willis, uh, author of 13 books. Uh, he has, man, I love this guy. He has so many of the same insights. He, he's, and he's popular with us. To, he, he's he's going to be back for a couple shows uh, next month with oh, that's awesome. with us. Yeah, he uh, very nice uh, guy, and you know, Jan's. You know, great does great uh, representing her dad oh yeah and just just a brilliant brilliant researcher and the work he's done from quantum i mean again it's the same deal it's this this our history we've been told is not true and at a minimum but more exciting there's ways to self-experiment so when we talk about being safe and what you were talking about is that i'm always looking for some info on the grand canyon also i am a climber and fortunately, I have some friends that are brilliant climbers and route setters, and we are planning an expedition. I'm sure plenty of people out there have heard of G.E. Kincaid's Egyptian finds. Um, I don't care if they're true or not. I want to be very clear with everyone. The Grand Canyon has what we've been able to find out so far, and this started with uh, Gary from Everything Imaginable. He and I do a show regularly monthly. But the big thing with the Grand Canyon is that uh, G.E. Kincaid found a cave that's about 1,700 feet from the rim that was filled with Egyptian artifacts and a bunch of other things and possibly was occupied by the son of Cleopatra and Mark Antony that he and uh, thousands of Egyptians came to the Grand Canyon. And that's where they lived out their time. Um, maybe. But more importantly, what's interesting about the Grand Canyon that we've been able to find out is that the story keeps being perpetuated 
And as a climber and as uh, having access to the group, the brilliant group of human beings that I am able to tell you is uh, able, capable, and ready. And we are planning a trip back to the Grand Canyon to do some climbing, not to make the routes challenging, but to we're specifically targeting caves. We are not looking to splunk. Uh, however, we are looking to locate some rock cut openings. And I know a lot of people have gone down the Grand Canyon. So if anyone would like to forward with an email, this is the great thing about being um, just not just a listener, but a self-experimenter and explorer. If you've been to the Grand Canyon or know someone that has um, seen some peculiar openings, as in square or rectangular or even round, or just um, just if they felt something odd about a particular genetic memory, by the way, is something we all share. It's it, it, sometimes it might be an instinct or a hunch. You might just look at something, you know, something's off. You don't know why. It's not just an instinct. It's it's something that I know we've touched a little bit on, but it it has to do with that longevity that passing down of experiences and memories and or tapping into that collective consciousness. And some people have gone down the Colorado River and they've taken some photos, but you can certainly email me at not aliens. Uh, it's us uh, at Gmail. It's You can find me on YouTube at not aliens uh, also, or again at the site notaliens.com. And you can send me an email, but we are looking at targeting not to extensively enter anything, but to look for rock cut ruins that are at a height that are not easily explorable. And one of the exciting things I can report to you right now, which has only been talked about like once in the last three weeks. And we, what we're excited to find is that there's almost no splunking cave information for the Grand Canyon. And what that means is that there's lots of caves and there's lots of openings and lots of people look for minerals and there's the story of the Kincaid Cave and the of the amphitheater that's down by the river that people go look at it, you know, that can hold thousands of people. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for rock-cut ruins. So not Pueblo Indians, not um, Anasazi, not uh, any of the um, uh, mud brick building constructions that may have been done by some of the tribes over the last uh, diluvian period here, over the last post-diluvian groups. We're looking for rock-cut caves, caves that are not just natural, the caves that have been cut. And so we're going to make our effort to go back to the Grand Canyon and check that out. And uh, as soon as we have some locations that are optimally picked, we will be uh, putting that expedition on the way. Uh, the equipment is not the issue. It's just locating where we can go. And it's, yeah, it's a long way down, but there's places in Wyoming like Devil's Tower. Um, they have 900 to 1200 foot climbing routes. And uh, it's not about oh, the wow. difficulty. Yeah, we're not, we're not creating difficult routes. You can do routes like that in three, three and a half hours. But again, I climb a lot. And although I do a lot, there's the people that would be setting this. We're not Again, we're not trying to pull a free solo Alex Honnold sort of thing. What we're trying to do is build safe uh, path, passage to, to, to ascend or descend to locate uh, ruins that we think are anomalous to the canyon to what we would consider the dynastic indigenous peoples. So, yeah, we are looking for ruins that would indicate uh, tens of thousands of years of occupation ago where it may have been a higher technology that it that they might be rock cut and and again uh sure egyptian uh dynastic peoples uh ruins would be interesting but 
The reality is a lot of people have been to the canyon, a lot of people have been in it, a lot of people have taken helicopter rides. You can do that. But uh, there are no-go, no-fly zones, and, and uh, don't need any repeat stories on that. We know that. What we're looking for are anything that you have a gut feeling or photographs that you think might be helpful, feel free to email those. So that, that project is coming up first. And then, of course, Antarctica. You know, we just had a big conversation with Brad Olson. He's been to Antarctica. A lot of people don't know that you can actually go to Antarctica. But uh, before I go further on Antarctica, I just want to make it clear. We're going to be at, you know, again, I got the Forbidden Knowledge News Conference at the first weekend of April here, Friday and Saturday. Uh, but at America Stonehenge, if you'd like to meet me and hear a lecture in person, it should be really fun. And then the site should be pretty brilliant. If you want to come to New Hampshire, that's at the end of April. And outside of that, uh, Dennis Stone uh, has graciously accepted mine and Jennifer Deo's help. She's an archaeologist. She's a good friend of mine. And we are going to be doing research at America Stonehenge. There could be a dolmen on site. And that has to do with the antiquity of ancient advanced humans, by the way. So anywhere you are in this world, anywhere you are in this country, if you have a dolmen near you, you should go look at it. You should go see it. Look for square cut, rock cut, uh, um, unweathered edges. Dolmens are very mysterious because they really seem to be very, very ancient structures that were maybe adapted for uh, post-Diluvian flood or post uh, catastrophe societies that used it for maybe some other purpose, but go look for dolmens. But we are going to do some research on America's Stonehenge, and we're not going to do it the weekend of the lecture, the weekend of the tour at the end of April. We're just we're going to go to visit. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, an event we're going there for, but specifically, like I said, I'm going to speak on Saturday, but then we're going to plan the Grand Canyon trip, and then the, and then there's one a very uh, close to home for me. Something I'm really excited about Jennifer Dale and I doing is a uh, dig in South America. Uh, the plans are complex because it has to do with seismic metamaterials and the idea that our most advanced ancestors, not only having control of our genetics, had control of sounds, waves, frequencies, energies, that vibrational medicine and energies of they understood the universe like we don't. We're rediscovering it. But uh, mm -hmm. I am planning a trip to work out some of those seismic metamaterials that they possibly use to build megalithic structures. And that's wow. where I want to start. So th those are the things that are actually on the table. And I appreciate you giving me a platform to even chat about them a bit. So if any of that sounds interesting to anyone, I, I try to get back to people as best I can. So feel free to send me an email. Yeah, and, and you know, Mentioned this on you know, only one of the times Maria was a guest where uh, uh, Tom, Thomas Hardy uh, in Tess of the Durbervilles uh, talked about uh, you know, the book ends there, uh, just gave it away, but um, it, 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 he does talk about. Uh, uh, Stonehenge hums, and he, oh yeah, he, yeah. He he was a local boy. Uh, yes, he 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 was an architect, a, a trained architect as well. But it, you know, he, he visited the place. You know, he's familiar with it. Uh, that's a it, just an example of 
a late Victorian author commenting what we're just you know, rediscovering it. And I, I think that's the right term to use. Uh, I think early on in my journalism career, yeah, I probably said, you know, we're just discovering that now. It's really uh, rediscovering, I think, is a more appropriate term to use. And they just, I think, in tonight's show and, you know, throughout your book, you give us so many examples of how advanced the ancient people were all, all, all across the world. Um, you know, one of the places uh, is fascinating. Uh, um, you know, we have like six minutes to get into it is uh, Nan Madal. Uh, uh, how, how are they getting all those Huge blocks yeah, out there in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a city I talk about in the book, and I think what's important is it's back to it's a solid. It's another example. Uh, we brought up pyramids, and they've you know again people have to consider that they've been maintained, they've been repaired, they've been adapted to not just a culture that has been continuously there in the last few thousand years, like when Robert Schock figured out the Sphinx was you know, maybe 36,000 years old uh, or 20,000 yeah. years old. Yeah, so here's Nan Madal. And again, the biggest mystery is that there are more stone, basalt stone blocks there to build this uh, flotilla, basically a Venice of uh, South Indonesia, that it's a, a South Asia. It's a, It's a city that, Again, it's you can canoe through it, you can boat through it. It's built basically in the water, but it has enough blocks that you could build the Great Pyramid or more. And I don't even think they have a great, any entirely exact count, but I think it's a fabulous example of a place that has dragged what I think were pre-existing blocks to build a post-Diluvian flood culture city. They didn't. I don't think that they carved it or sorted it out. That's not a single society. I think they found what was broken and used and broken, just piles of a prior societies. And again, the metal, plastic, glass, uh, any other, all things disintegrate. Stone, not so much. It weathers. So like right. standing stones and, and, and Stonehenge itself, is mysterious in that there is weathering on site. And, and the Stonehenge that people see today is not how they found it. It's not all the stones. It's just an interpretation of what they think Stonehenge should look like. That should frustrate people to no end. It is an interpretive rebuild. It is not the original construction, nor is it that all the blocks are from a single period. Again, you have the perfectly smart, capable, and ingenious later cultures being able to not only decide that they're as romantically in love as Stonehenge, 
but being able to locate the actual quarries that it came from and and adding on to it. So Nan Madal, you have again this these large uh blocks that again just to carry them and stack them. And I, I like to use Graham Hancock's reference for this because if you were to place a block on the pyramid every two minutes, it would take you even even if you work twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, it would and you and you did it, mind you, you have to cut it and place it in two minutes. And most of the stones came from, I think, I think it's like two to 400 miles away. But uh, it's, you have, there was a lot of transportation. But let's just say they were cutting and transporting and placing them every two minutes. And that would put the construction of the pyramid between 23 and a half and 27 years at two minute intervals. Now you have Nan Madal with as much or more stone. So the same level of effort to build the existing structure, and it looks very primitive, yet we have dolmens, we have standing stones, we have Stonehenge that clearly look like they've been adapted by multiple cultures. And I want to bring a quick shout out to Easter Island, to Rapa Nui, Mm -hmm. because the Moai are not all equal. There's about a thousand Moai. Of those, the most, take a guess again, the most complex, the most well-cut, the most complexity, complex uh, carving and polishing are on the ones that are made of the hardest stone. Of the basalt, there's about 150 of them. But the later Moai, the ones that came towards the end of the society, were made out of the softest stone. They were much less complex. So it really looks like another culture came. And the huh. earliest accounts of Rapa Nui was that there were blonde-haired, that there was multiple types of people on the island. They weren't just all Polynesian, black-haired, dark-skinned, that there was redheads, there was blonde-haired, blue-eyed accounts, was that there was a vast variety of people on the island by the earliest contact point. But that aside, again, the earliest statues were the most complex. A few of them, you know, the British Museum helped themselves to three, like they got them off the island. And the the point though is that again, the most complex come first, and then later it get like Gobekli Tepe. You have large megalithic pillars, which the description of the original columns very complex. And then they said, oh well, we found the quarry. Mind you, it's five percent dug up, but they found the quarry. So why went later post-apocalyptic, post-Diluvian flood uh, um, dynastic peoples, nomadic dynastic people, in other words, other people than those who built it originally, adapted it, cut it up, and then mimicked what they found. So the same thing with Nan Madal. You have a massive pile of erect building where all the wood's gone, the plastic's gone, the metal's gone, but they have this giant pile of, of, of stone. And they hey, adapted Jer- it and built that city. Jared, Jer- we have okay. Well, we're just about out of time. Hey, um, oh yeah. J- j- check out Jared on uh, notaliens.com. We'll see everyone Thursday night. Thanks, Jared. Bye.